Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 76 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Left Behind from 2014. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us once again, back for a couple episodes recently, and seventh time overall, Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Hey, guys. Uh, glutton for punishment here. This is a movie that is... I don't, hold on. I want to look up what you said to us when you signed up for this movie, because oh, you had no. little reasons. Oh, you had no. reasons why you wanted to watch all these movies. Yeah, and did. for this one, I don't remember what you said. So we're going to take a look. This is like in court okay. when you read the transcript back yes. to somebody of what they... Yeah, yeah. You wrote... I was one thesis short of an English religious studies double major in college, and this mm. shit fascinates me. Yeah, yeah. I propose taking one for the team and watching the Kirk Cameron original first <laughs> so we can compare. Oh, boy. So this was young and dumb Tobin back <laughs> yes, in October. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Now, I know yes. that Mike sort of dipped his toe into the Kirk Cameron waters. Did you watch the Kirk Cameron one or no? I watched the first 45 minutes. And then had to turn it off? And then had to turn it off. <laughs> and then the, I, I also, to be fair, I watched the Cage one first, just in case the Kirk Cameron was so terrible <laughs> that I it melted my eyeballs or something. So I did Cage first, and then I watched the first, you know, three sequences of the other one. So I have some experience with it. Uh, Mike, how far did you get in it? So I also got about, you know, 40 minutes in and turned it off, but then I came back, sat down, and watched the last hour oh of it. God. Oh my god, okay. Yeah, so believe it or not... <laughs> I, All right, uh, I you win. You raptures. win. And that was a movie that I had literally no interest in ever diving into, so I steered clear completely. So I guess you are both either better or worse men than me. I'm not sure how we're gonna how we're gonna deal with that right here. Maybe both. Uh, maybe both. So these movies, both movies, and we're just mostly gonna talk about the Cage movie yeah. now. Yeah. Are based on the Left Behind series of books written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And they are these international, global, massive bestsellers, hundreds of millions of copies sold worldwide, very, very, very popular in the Christian world. They made the movie, the Kirk Cameron movie, about 10 years ago or so, maybe a little bit less. Then they made a sequel to that, and then they rebooted it for this. It's this massive IP, this gigantic franchise, both book and film, there's supposedly sequels in the works for this. Cage is not attached from what I can see. The directors put up a Kickstarter looking for $500,000. They made $80,000, took it down, and then put up their own crowdfunding thing on their own platform. Who knows? So whether or not this movie will ever get a sequel is left in the air. I have no idea what follows after this, but this is like a mammoth monster, pardon the pun, maybe, like biblical epic story. You know what I mean? Like this is this is a story to tell. I knew this was a book, but I didn't know it was like Harry Potter level huge around the world kind of stuff. But this movie did feel like part one. I didn't realize, but until the very end, I was like, whoa. This is so strange. It's like up there with strange endings for Cage movies because suddenly it's like a cliffhanger. I was like, oh, that's, that's one way to take it. It just it felt incomplete. Yeah, it's, it's the start of a franchise is what it feels like, right? Or the, the attempted start of a franchise, which, which clearly is. It's unmistakable. It's taking this series of books that was so popular and doing what a Hollywood studio is going to do, right? Revamp it, reboot it. Uh, do it again and try and make it a try and turn it into a into a big franchise operation. 
Um, now, whether they, they're ever going to be successful with that is, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's another question, I guess. But that, that's certainly how this feels. And it leaves this movie, which we'll get to the movie itself, but it leaves it at the end feeling um, it's an odd end to this movie for sure. What's kind of interesting, just like about the material in and of itself, it's stuff that I feel could work and has worked before a lot. You know, like you just have like just the theme of airplane movies as a genre, right? Like there's lots of good ones out there and this could fall into that. Or, you know, there's been lots of good Twilight Zones about airplane. I mean, and science fiction stuff like along this lines, it's got a good setting. It's got a good or interesting premise. So for me, it's sort of all about how you handle the ball you know it's it's going to be the people making the film and you know in both instances it that's what it comes down to and it sort of falls flat in those areas yeah if you want to see this premise handled really well you watch the leftovers obviously like that's the version of this done right where that where the characters are real and where the situations feel believable now it's not explicitly a rapture that's not you know it is not that is not an ideological series joey you're a fan of that that show right yeah, I'm a huge fan of that series, and that's not necessarily religious. Like, that's the whole kind right, of point right. of that, that they don't know what it is. This is definitively, this is the rapture. God took the good people and left all the sinners behind. Yeah, exactly. This is a film made not for the sake of narrative, but for the sake of an ideology. That's what the, that's what this film is, right? It keeps it from being you know, a good movie in so many ways because you can see time and time again that the decisions made are being made to serve an ideology as opposed to serving the story or the characters or the things that would make a film or in the case of The Leftovers, a TV show that, that make that, uh, you know, compelling and interesting and worth watching. And I think that, that a lot of the problems with this movie stem from that. Yeah, I think you nailed it right on the head. Uh, I couldn't quite place it watching this, put my finger on it. Why didn't feel cohesive or there was just sort of no flow to this i'm because i'm sitting there going you know like this should be working right like this should be interesting and exciting and tense and stuff but you're right it just constantly stops to preach you know and (laughs) and that doesn't make a movie work you know i'm sorry like you know you you could be pro or anti-religion either either of those films they just it comes across as propaganda in a lot of ways you know and i can spy that and it's uncomfortable and doesn't really work. Yeah, and in a fictional film, having that kind of a, a you know, the propaganda is off-putting anyway, whether you're on that side or not when it comes to a fictional story. Documentary, I think, is a little bit of a different thing, but, but when it comes to narrative, we expect certain things that we, you know, we have, we have, it's in our DNA as human beings to, you know, respond to certain narrative elements. And when you are sub- subverting those for the sake of trying to just get a point across, then I think it, it, can, it can really kill the story. Now, what's kind of interesting about this movie, because it is so heavily propaganda that I don't think it's possible for anyone to argue that it's a good movie. Supposedly, the authors of the book series neither liked the 2000 version and filed suit against it for breach of contract. They saw an early cut of this movie and said, quote, it's the best movie they've ever seen on the rapture. <laughs> so they love this movie. Wow. However, however, the movie has a 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Rotten Tomatoes consensus says, quote, Yea, verily, like unto a plague of locusts, left behind hath begat a further scourge of devastation upon Nicolas Cage's once-proud filmography. But what's even better, in sort of a twisted, ironic sense, is that Christian film critics are especially critical of this movie as well. One guy, Paul Chambers from MovieChambers.com, says, 
There are millions of Christians with average or above average intelligence. I'd like to think that I'm one of them. So what possessed the makers of Left Behind to produce such an ignorant piece of garbage uh, that's easily wow. one of the worst films of 2014, <laughs> if not all time? That is so spot on that this movie, all the Christian people in this movie, everybody who's raptured, and that's pretty much summed up by the mom and the son, kind of, mm -hmm. they are both caricatures of people. And the yes. mom especially is just, like, crazy. What's also weird and bad about this movie is that the movie has no care or no desire to characterize these people at all. Like, the people that we spend most of the movie with. That right. we know Cage, we know Cage's daughter, we know this investigative journalist, and we sort of know the flight attendant. But everybody in first class, which is pretty much the rest of the main characters, it's pretty much like, hey, that's the black guy, that's the Texan, that's the little person. They don't have names, they have titles, they have like designations. These are all the sinners, these are all the right. people that are not mm -hmm. good enough for heaven. I don't know, like, yeah, mm. it just, <laughs> it's just so bad. Like, the movie does not care who these people are, or what their backstory is, they're all just angry sinners left behind from God's wrath. Yeah, and like to me, the way it comes across is sort of like this self-righteousness, you know? Like that's the attitude that I'm getting. Like there's a scene early on where you called him an investigative journalist. I thought he was a country music star for like the first 20 <laughs> minutes. I thought she was ironically calling him an investigative journalist because he didn't know like how to figure things out. But There's no irony in this movie whatsoever. Uh, I, so. but, but the way it's playing to me is very sarcastic. Like it's coming across like a satire or something like that just in its strange sort of elitist earnestness about the material and stuff. I don't know. I'm just getting like this talk down to feeling about the film. And, you know, especially early on when that lady comes up and like, it's the mission statement. She like berates this guy about judgment day is coming and you're a sinner and like blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, all this stuff. And it's just like, okay, I don't even feel like fundamentalists talk like that. You know, like I feel like that's a caricature. So to portray that as sort of, this is who we are, the people, making this movie, it feels irresponsible. Can I ask you a question, Mr. Williams? Yeah, sure. Do you read the Bible? Well, I'm guessing not as often as you do. <laughs> well, Matthew 24, verse 7 says that there shall be famines, and pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. All of these things, the disasters, the wars, they are all signs. So God knew that all these things were going to happen. Honey, God knows everything. So then why doesn't he do something? I mean, he is God, right? Couldn't he stop a flood if he wanted to? Maybe send a little rain to stop it's a famine? It's a fallen world. God created it perfect, and we destroyed it with the first sin. Who destroyed it? Me? You? Him? The Lord works in mysterious ways, I know. But somehow people keep believing that he loves them. Now that is mysterious. Yeah, there are times it feels like a Saturday Night Live sketch sometimes. There are times where its scolding earnestness boomerangs on itself, right? And then you realize that, no, they're taking that seriously. Like, the movie believes that woman, and the movie is supposed to, to bear that woman's story out, her warning out, you know? And she is so nasty. She is such a scold. I'm surprised, not surprised, I guess, but gratified, Joey, to hear, the, hear you quote the evangelical critics who are rightly, have right to be offended by the way that their beliefs... They're, you know, the, the other people who believe what they believe. I, I would feel that way, for sure, for sure. And, and it's not just even the people that are in the first class. Like, even in the opening shots in the airport, the, the extras are so happy. 
they're so like it's it's like a high school play where everybody's on sugar and it, it gives I, I wouldn't want to live in that town you know there's a, a stepford wife quality to, yes. the, to the movie to the, in the way that like this is the their view of the world the, the the filmmaker's view of the world and that to me is one of the most chilling things in the movie unintentionally i think what I think doubles that down, that everybody's smiling and so happy to be around. And also, I want to go back one step in this sort of opening sequence when Mike... I think, Mike, you're, you're sort of vindicated in thinking he's a country music star, this big celebrity. Because I don't think there's any investigative journalist who would be recognized by no. everyone in the airport. <laughs> like, he is the biggest celebrity in the world and just walking forward, and <laughs> everybody is so happy to see him. Everybody is just happy to be he's alive. He's signing autographs across all, as he walks across the airport, like mobbed by like, people. Like, I can see, like, a news anchor, you know, like a Katie right. Kirk or an Anderson Cooper being sort of mobbed or whatever. Not even mobbed, because, I mean, mobbed, they're going yeah. to fly under the radar. Like, people are going to be like, oh, hi. But I also feel like people, in general, know how to behave around celebrities. Like, they're not going to go up to him and, like, like, form, like, a cluster of people around. Whatever. Anyway. So that's just crazy. Yeah. But what doubles down on the happiness and just the joyful vibe, which I kind of love, ironically, throughout the entire movie, <laughs> is the score. The oh, score in this movie God. is amazing. Because it's so happy for no reason. Like, I don't know why whoever picked the music picked the music that they did, but it is the most joyful, happy, cheerful... Like, I guess they're setting up, like, everything's going great, because God is smiling down upon us. And then when the rapture happens, everything sort of go, gets bad from there on out. But there's so much heavy-handed, joyful music early on in this movie that I couldn't help but laugh every time a new song started up. There's a fantastic sax solo that happens fairly yes. early on in the movie that somewhere somewhere around the time that uh, the flight attendant is putting on her lipstick and stuff. And it is priceless and probably, you know, 30 years too late. Yeah, I got, like, an extremely heavy Lifetime vibe from this. Like, beyond Lifetime, even. One of those channels that just run sermons all day. Like, they'll play movies like this, you know, late at night for the kids and the family. But I just feel like everything is, like, a step off. They get their enemy. Like, the writers of this movie, it feels like they don't really know their enemy. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're trying to write the people who are left behind. But they've made them so ultra-stereotypical that you just don't get a sense that they're real at all. And I think that's where I'm coming from with this reporter guy. Like, they're like, oh, what kind of a liberal reporter, you know? Like, oh, like, let's make him the target kind of that thing I'm getting from here, too. You know, it relates to the music because it just has, like, this vibe of, like... We know what we're doing, yet they totally don't. You know, they're like, oh, let's use like this music will just be perfectly accent this moment and, you know, set our tone and all that kind of stuff. The other thing, too, is like there's always something with sort of apocalypse movies where you know that there's an impending event, right? Like the day after or, you know, any of those Roland Emmerich films, like even if they're funny and cheesy, there's always that sort of sense of dread and stuff. And you never get that from here. If anything, it's like quite the opposite. It feels like nothing bad is like ever going to happen. And I just wish that they at least tried to foreshadow some, something bad was going to happen. There's no foreshadowing at all. One thing I kind of want to give this movie a little bit of credit for is when the rapture actually does happen, and we're jumping ahead and we're going to get there, we're going to build back up to it, but when the rapture actually happens, it's shot kind of well, like kind of mm -hmm. competently, like it's kind of mm -hmm. cool to watch. I mean, The Leftovers did it better. So, okay, so the thing with The Leftovers is that the, when The Leftovers had the rapture happen, 
I don't remember it being more than like two or three minutes. And then they just jump forward three or four years. Right. Because The Leftovers is not concerned with answers. The Leftovers is concerned exclusively with how people deal with what happened and how they react to it and how they continue their life. Here, when the rapture actually happens, like the panic that ensues is pretty great. And then instead of cutting forward and seeing what comes next, we are just treated to the next hour of what happens next. And it's just sort of like the same three minutes stretched over an hour. And it's not great. One thing, I don't know if either of you looked up who the director was. Mm -hmm. This guy, Vic Armstrong, predominantly a stuntman, which is the second movie in a row, I believe, that was done by a stuntman turned director. However... He also did a lot of second unit work, and he did second unit work on Season of the Witch, specifically oh. the Crusades sequences, okay. and he also did second unit on Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Oh. So we've seen kind of cool, big action in those movies, which I'm assuming is what he did as second unit director on them, so it makes sense to me that like that actual moment of terror and craziness is pretty cool. It's just impossible to sustain that level of whatever for a full hour. Yeah, it's handled better here than it is in the first Left Behind version and then than the first movie, I think. I would have said the same thing, Joe, if you had beat me to it, that, that the moment where Nicolas Cage's daughter is hugging her brother, <laughs> who is who's a terrible, terrible character, but she's hugging her brother, she's just left holding his clothes. She's boom, and she's just holding his clothes, and he's gone. Like, there's a jump scare to that, you know? Like, there's a, a gotcha moment there. And I think that every time that this film works for me, and there are one or two other places, what it, what it really is is a very, very basic element of cinema is working. And in this case, it's out of the blue at a moment of sort of heightened reconciliation or happiness between these two characters. Boom, something terrible happens in an instant. And back to the very first cinema tricks, you know, where you cut the camera and then change something in the frame and start the camera again. And suddenly, you know, it looks like magic has happened. So it's only because they harness a couple of very, very basic tools that anything in this movie works for me yeah and this is way better than the original like i kind of missed the rapture in the first one (laughs) like there's no signifying mark that it happened like some lady just looks over to her husband who's like you know the old lady is in it also from first class and she's like my husband's gone and it's just like his his clothes are there but there's no like flash of light like people aren't going nuts to be quite honest with you like it's kind of a minor part of that movie you know like there's other things that you know we'll talk about later towards the end it's But, you know, the whole thing about being on the plane and, you know, the pilot and reporter and that, like, that's literally like maybe 10, 15 minutes of the original movie. So it's kind of remarkable where they took that and stretched it out to an entire film where it actually works much better. Like, the original goes to such incredibly strange places. I actually can't wait to talk about (laughs) it later. I just think what the issue is, is like, we keep cutting back and forth from New York City to the airplane. New York City to the airplane. And there's no reasons to why we're cutting back and when we're cutting back. It's just like, here's a scene on the plane. Here's a scene on the ground. Here's a scene on the plane. Here's a scene on the ground. And I wish we weren't so interrupted, you know, because this stuff on the ground during the rapture is just working because, like you say, Toby, I think fundamentally, you know, visually, when you have a street filled with clothes and crashed vehicles on fire, like, it's just cinematic and it's fun to watch and stuff like that. So there's kind of this tease going on where we're just going to show this cool carnage and then cut back to a cockpit or first class. And it's just kind of, ugh, it's just like, interrupt us. <laughs> what I feel like the reason it's cutting back and forth, and this is something we've seen a bunch of times in Cage Club, I don't know for sure, but it almost feels like the book that it's based on 
has different chapters told from different perspectives, kind of like Game of Thrones. That's just sort of the sense that I get. That like we have a Nick Cage chapter as the pilot in the in the cockpit, and then we have a chapter for his daughter, and then we have a chapter for the investigative journalist. And so instead of figuring out a way to blend this story together better and make an actual movie. It's like they're like, okay, we need to take the exact same structure of the book and cut from this character to this character to this character. And that's what I was saying. I don't remember if it was on mic or off mic when we last recorded that I didn't remember Cage being in this movie a lot. And he's actually in it more than I remembered. But there's so many things that, we, that the movie feels like we need to pay attention to outside of him that we need to know all the things that are going on in first class. We need to know everything that's going on with his daughter and her looking around and going to the hospital. We need to know what's going on with the investigative journalist. We need to know what's going on with the flight attendant. And there's too many perspectives, even though they don't spend time developing any of them. And so it's sort of frustrating that, not that Cage is a well-defined character by any means, but he's sort of the most well-defined. And we just don't spend enough time with him and sort of the most interesting thing, like him trying to land a plane that's on fire and out of fuel, and we just keep cutting away to his daughter just like wandering around the streets, like looking for her brother, <laughs> even though in the back of her mind she knows that he's already gone. Oh, it's it's not and, good. And that stuff is like so undramatic. I'm like, oh, the plane's on fire because they're leaking fuel, instead of the plane's on fire because they're leaking fuel. Like, there's no. <laughs> sense of action or anything there where like it should be and there's a, like almost a mid-air collision and it's like the same thing it's like here it comes here it comes here it comes there it went <laughs> and it's just like there needs to be more turmoil more like there should be a fight going on in first class or at least you know if i was writing this movie first class would symbolize like class structure in america and this is like what we have left to work with and build the new un right like here in first class or something i don't know i'm just some stuff i'd like to see them do like there's ways they could have fleshed out these characters easily instead we do have just like the bitter little person and you know the misunderstood muslim or just like it's strange can we go back just for a minute backtrack uh, we talk about the flight attendant and cage just for a minute because i think this this was going to fall uh, at least in the first half of this movie very much in line with the way a lot of female characters have been treated in these cage movies this is going to be an extreme example for people who have not seen this movie who are listening to this just because they're uh, gluttons for punishment or interested in in the rapture or whatever we introduced to this woman that, that I suspected at the beginning that Cage was having an affair with. We know that he's having problems with his wife. We know that, that we learned soon after the, 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 the beginning of this movie that his wife, uh, who's played by Leah Thompson, right? Where yeah. she has become very devout and he is not. You get this sax solo, as I said before, and here's this woman putting on this bright red lipstick and then he's high, high heels stepping out of the car. It's total, like, vixen thing right of this yep. this 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 woman and it's it's like a i don't know like a 14 year old 13 year old kids you know imagined version of even younger than that right of, of what like a terrible vixen like this woman is just clearly all about sex and is going to tear cage away from this family and and he takes off his ring right he takes off his ring <laughs> and then it turns out that a they've sort of had this ongoing relationship but b they have not slept together yet right like this is where the ideology thing comes in here if this movie was following was going to be just a narrative they probably would have been having an affair and then this this whole experience is going to wake him up to not but no 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 since this is about this particular ideology he is only being tempted by this woman, right? It's just the temptation, and that's bad enough. That is bad enough. It's driving me crazy. They get these tickets to go see you too. So apparently, <laughs> yep, anybody, anybody who's 
it's like the devil's music, right? Anybody who's ever been to a U2 concert is, is clearly not going to be raptured. Like, that's their signifier for <laughs> for this, this thing that they're going to do. I don't know. Did she bother either of you guys as much as she bothered me? So I guess in theory, right, this is the weekend that they – there's okay, actually, hold on. So <laughs> – No one can get U2 tickets that easily. That's all I have to say about the man. Well, no, he's – remember, the guy said he spent weeks trying to get them. Like, he spent a long time. That random cart driver at the airport's like, <laughs> yes. tell your dad I spent weeks trying to get them. And she's like – weeks he said he just got called into work today like what's going on here like like first draft was definitely guns and roses and someone was like oh they're not together for the past 15 years (laughs) so maybe for the sequel now that guns and roses is reunited they can have their original idea and put that back in i think duff was definitely raptured slash was raptured (laughs) my favorite interaction between the stewardess or excuse me between the flight attendant and cage is when he tells her that joke and i don't even remember the joke because the joke is so, so bad. (laughs) And they say the joke, and she just laughs and laughs and laughs. And then we cut away to another scene, and then three minutes later, we cut (laughs) back to her, and she's still laughing. Yeah. And she's like, oh, that joke, man, he is just so funny. Um, (laughs) I I just love his sense of humor. Turkey, uh, vulture, comes up to the gate and drops two dead rabbits onto the floor. And the flight attendant says, I'm sorry, you're only allowed one Carry on. I'm sorry, Captain, that's bad. Patty thought it was fine. <laughs> well, if you have any more bad jokes, you can come and find me. <laughs> what? Oh, I was just thinking about Ray's joke. That guy cracks me up. And she's like, wait, what are you talking about? Are you two like an item? And she's like, well, no, like this weekend we're going to spend some time in London. He's got us tickets, blah, 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 blah. And so I guess this, in theory, is the weekend where they might sleep together. But you're right. Like they set it up like this is like this ongoing affair yes. that no matter that, that every time they fly together, they sleep yeah. together. The sort of most flirty thing they do is that he kind of like she wears his captain's hat. Like yes. that's like that's the <laughs> right. like the most sexualized that they right. ever get this relationship ever gets. And it's crazy and it's also kind of amazing because like they are shown like these are the maybe the worst people in the movie, right? That he is leaving this plane, yeah. he's flying a plane full of heathens. She is serving all these heathens. They are the worst. They are what we're supposed to hate. And yet the worst thing that they do is like he takes off his ring, they walk in together, and she wears his hat for a little bit. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that this is all occurring on his birthday. What? Like, it's his birthday, and I guess the idea is he'd rather fly with this stewardess than stay at home with his crazy Christian wife. Like, that's kind of how I got it. That's what it was <laughs> coming across to me at some point. But, like, what an unnecessary extra detail. Why did it have to be his birthday? I just feel like it's like, oh, you know, on your birthday, you stay home with your family, you know? You resist the temptations or whatever, and, you you know, you just do what the moral standards tell you to do, be, to be a good person. And, like, that's what it takes. And it's like, no, even on his birthday, he's going to, like, cheat on his wife. It's not her birthday, you know. Maybe if it was her birthday, it would sting or something like that. But, yes, I just do not see them behaving badly. What I love is that this is the second movie that Tobin's been on for where it's just his birthday for unnecessary reasons. That we had The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and it was Jay Baruchel's birthday for no reason. And then here it's his birthday for no reason. But actually, I have a question before we go on. The whole birthday thing, I think, is just just to set up how bad of a person he is. And that this wife is this Christian wife, and that she's been setting this surprise party, and the daughter even flies home for it, and still Cage can't be bothered. 
But when they're at home, when the daughter gets home, and there are so many hugs in this movie, and she is hugging everybody, and everybody's hugging her, and when the mother comes in from gardening, she puts her dirty gardening gloves on top of the Bible. (laughs) And I was always told, you know, growing up, going to church that you should never sort of put things on top of the Bible. Like, it's a, it's the sacred thing. And she literally puts dirt on top of the... Like, it's almost like that's... Like, I don't know. Like, that seems like something that somebody else would do, you know, that the daughter would do or that Cage would do. This woman, I know that it's there to show that she's got a Bible around and at the ready, but was that weird? That was weird, right? Yeah, it was totally weird. And I, I think it, I, I took it also as trying to show that she knew her daughter didn't really approve, and so she was sort of trying to cover it a little bit but but i don't know why she would do that if she's going to be i don't i didn't i didn't get it i didn't get it i mean because she's sort of out and proud about it right that's her whole thing i mean and she doesn't really seem to be shoving it in anyone's face like we get the sense before we're even introduced to her that she's just like the lady at the airport right she's like my mom's crazy too you know i know how to deal with them like i've been saving that you know speech for her and we meet her mom and i'm like you've been saving that speech for poor leah thompson yeah yeah (laughs) she's been stuck home with like nerd boy this whole time like you know sir hugs a lot and it's like all she needs is like someone to talk to it's straight yeah i too was just told you know you don't even really put a bible on the floor you know you just treat it with respect even if you know you're not interested yeah i couldn't really tell what was happening here because then the daughter doesn't she even in the way she slips like she slips right so she starts talking about like oh you know i was at the airport i met this reporter oh you should have heard this crazy religious lady oh i'm sorry it was like (laughs) where did that come from like you're picking a fight it was so strange yeah, they also, can we say, I, I, where, I don't know where they live. Like, the, the airport is New York, and then this town they drive into, like, the this, the place, sort of palatial giant yards, it's like a Leave it to Beaver neighborhood all of a sudden that, that they're in. As the daughter gets out of the car, her brother, the, the nerd brother, as you're, as you're rightly calling him, comes running out to her, gives her this big hug and says, did you get me anything at the airport? Yes, which is not which is, not just not did you get me no, anything, but did you get no. me anything at the airport? At, she's flown home from college, okay. So, and he asked, "Did you get me anything at the airport where his dad goes to work every day?" <laughs> every day, right? Yes. And then, and then on top of it, she did somehow. She got it. <laughs> she got him that baseball glove he and wanted he, at and the he airport. Said, a baseball at the glove. airport. Yeah, he says the brand new baseball glove that I've been asking for. That's what he says. Like th- this script is so. Bad. Is it's it his birthday? Is it? It's I like a full two level confusion going on here. So the baseball glove that he wanted so bad that he's been asking for 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 weeks has been at the airport where his dad goes. All I, I just that's when I and knew. It's getting right? like, given to him on his dad's birthday. It's not even his birthday, and he's getting the gift. <laughs> yes, yes. It's ter- terrible, terrible. It's the best. I think you're mispronouncing the best. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You're right. I'm sorry. I, to be fair, I did rewind it to watch it again to make sure I heard that all right. And, and, and I got a good chuckle out of it. So you're right. I guess it was pretty good. <laughs> the other thing is that, like, the mom is crazy. Leah Thompson, another sort of Back to the Future cage connection. I will also have you note that, I mean, it makes sense. I, don't, I didn't think about it when I watched the movie. But even though she's married to Cage, they're never on camera together. Like, they never share a scene, which is kind of probably pretty unusual in terms of Hollywood, to have a married couple just never together. And then she gets raptured and she's gone forever. But what I like about it is that not only is she portrayed as crazy, but the movie has a lot of time spent with other characters talking about how crazy she is. Uh. Like, when Cage is riding up the escalator and the stewardess is wearing his hat 
And then he sees his daughter and is just like, well, have a good flight. And he like turns on a dime. He's like, got to be dad now. And then he goes and sits down with her. He says one of my favorite quotes in the movie. He says, well, if she's going to run off with another man, it might as well be Jesus. And it's like such a weird, awkward, hacky line. But I also love it because it's so bad. I'm not sure. Now, look, I, I know that this past year has been something of an, of an adjustment. But she's your mother. And I think it would be good if you, no, if we both could be a little more supportive. Did you miss her? Yes, I do. But hey, she's going to run off with another man. Why not Jesus, huh? Yeah, actually, I think that is that is not a bad line. And I think he does pretty well with it. Like, that's a line that in another in another movie, in another show, I think I think could, could for sure work. Here, in the middle of this movie, I don't know, the line works much better than the movie around it. I think Cage came up with that line. That's my theory. Like, it's too good. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, to me, it plays like something you'd say, like a catchphrase type punchline. Like, it's something you'd say in an action movie, like, after you knock someone out, you know? Like, it's this movie's version of that, right? Like, it's uh-huh. it's like a punchline. That's the way I took it. Back to when the rapture actually happens, and, and they're trying to, like, figure out what's going on. This is reminding me of the thing about, like, zombie movies, where nobody's ever seen a zombie movie before, or... Mm. You know, Dracula movies that nobody's ever seen, you know, modern day, nobody's ever seen or heard of a vampire before. If this happened today, yeah, it would be crazy for sure. And crazy shit would happen. But someone is going to voice the rapture pretty soon, don't you think? I mean, someone's going to, you know, make that claim. And when they don't, you're like, and I, I understand that these are not the, these are not the most devout people who are left. But, like, right. the rapture is a pretty understood thing. Like, you, you sort of know what it is. If somebody had said that earlier, you know, it would have given this movie, again, a little more shred of credibility. But instead, it doesn't. The only person who seems to know what happened, or the only people who seem to know, are the daughter, sort of, she doesn't really realize it. She kind of knows, but she doesn't realize it. The Reverend, which is the craziest person who wasn't raptured, and we'll get to him. We'll get to him a little bit later. <laughs> favorite and character, the only, and then the yeah. only other person who knows is the junkie on the Second plane. Second favorite character. This movie's <laughs> version of Charlie Pace from Lost, just this yes, heroin exactly junkie on the plane. She only knows because she went to church camp when she was little. And she knew that there was a time when God would take all the blessed people or the holy people or the religious people and leave everyone else behind. The movie, it sort of has two minds. It's keeping this secret a secret. Like, they don't know what it is. And she's like, I know what it is. And then she goes to the bathroom and, like, doesn't talk for another ten minutes. And then there's other people who are just like, I know what it is. And then we just cut away. It's like, well, what is it? But we all know what it is. Like, we all know going into this movie what it is. Like you're saying, Tobin, all the characters should know what it is. I'm not sure why they're holding it back. And then as soon as they say it, everybody's just like, oh, yeah, like, that's what it is. And then, like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, like, there's, yeah, yeah. There's, no, yeah. there's no stakes. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, we're all a bunch of sinners. Like, yeah, okay. Like, we're, okay, that makes sense. And also, when it happens, Cage, you know, for the next few scenes when we cut back to him, keeps trying to call air traffic control and can't get through. And I'm like, oh, my God. Everyone who works in air traffic control was a devout evangelical Christian because they all got raptured. Like, it takes him forever to raise anybody on this radio. And I know they're, they're way out in the middle of the Atlantic or whatever at this point. But I just that, that, that just made me laugh. There are times like throughout this movie where, where that stuff like that would happen. And I just – if this movie took its premise, its world, and its characters seriously, it could be pretty interesting. It could be pretty good. But because it doesn't, it just keeps falling flat. 
I think around this time, I'd just like to quickly bring up the movie This Is the End, the sort of comedic rapture film that came out a few summers ago, you know, with our friend Jay Baruchel and <laughs> from uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. I feel like that movie got it lot better than this movie you know what i'm saying like for those you know that was made by a bunch of uh, jewish guys too for the most part and i feel like they had a better handle of the material in a lot of ways like they figured out it was the rapture and they were a bunch of stoners and you're right like it kind of comes down to what is the reality world of this movie what i'm kind of talking about is like what other movies do the, have these characters seen, like in zombie movies and such. Like in Prometheus, the one guy's watching Lawrence of Arabia, and I'm like, well, if that movie mm-hmm. exists, does Ridley Scott's Alien exist? And does the <laughs> quadrilogy, has he watched those films in hypersleep? And so it's this weird thing where you have to play kind of cat and mouse a little bit with your reveal, but when it's something so obvious it's kind of pointless to hide it. You know, it's like, don't make it about the mystery, make it about the revelation. And that's what I think This is the End did a lot better because they kind of come to grips with this is the end and we're left behind and like now it's all about survival and it feels like a step you can kind of skip pretty quickly in the storytelling. But here they... It's like they had the one guy who was like, well, maybe it was aliens. Maybe it was terrorists. Maybe everyone was sucked <laughs> to an alternate dimension. You know, they want them to feel like stupid people. Well, I mean, they are stupid people because they didn't believe in God and the Bible. So, I mean, they're left <laughs> behind for a reason. <laughs> they are the stupidest people. In terms of, like, this is the end, like, it's sort of the same thing. And this is on a completely different tangent. But when 12 Years a Slave came out, you have a British director and a British leading actor mm-hmm. telling the most honest depiction or creating the most honest depiction of slavery, of American slavery. Mm-hmm. So sometimes maybe it takes someone a little bit removed to be able to do it well. So instead of having these religious zealots in Lehay and Jenkins or whoever, and it seems like the people who wrote the movie, both the two authors of the book and also the people who wrote the movie and the guy who directed like it just seems like this is all they do. Like it's all left mm-hmm. behind stuff. And so I think they're just too close. Like, they don't know how to tell a non-biased story. Mm. And so they're just like, hey, we're going to tell it our way. And it makes sense to us. So, like, you, you guys should understand it too, right? As you've alluded to in the past, all these characters who are in first class are such caricatures and, and to some degree or another uh, at times offensive. I mean, that the little person is the meanest person yeah. ever. Like, he is it's such a dick. That. And, and and for no reason, like it's not like there's another shade to him, or that it, there's just nothing, nothing else to that. Can I give you a hand with your bag? Did I ask for a hand? I I can put it on top for you. Yeah, so can I. What are you looking at? You want to ask me a question? You want to know how I drive? Maybe where I buy my clothes? How do I reach the urinal? What's a urinal? The place where it infuriated me the most, um, there's a moment where the daughter is, because her car has been destroyed, right? By a plane or something? Or her car, <laughs> yeah, a right? biplane she, lands she, on it. A biplane, that's right. Lands on, a, <laughs> lands on a car, right? Which is actually Cage's car. And somehow she's, she, she pocketed his wedding ring, right? Which he left in the car. It's great. So, he still, so that she will have it later in the movie. Well, she's walking home as people are looting stores and stuff. Like, it's this, this terrible vision of humanity as, as the only thing people left to do is like run into a store, grab a TV and, and stuff. So she's walking home and she's passing the store and like the glass shatters in the store and this guy, there's a gunshot and this guy flies out into the street clutching this jewelry. And then this, what is, I think we are meant to see as this Jewish jewelry store owner comes out with a shotgun is one of the most blatant and sort of 
off-putting and offensive caricatures of a Jewish person. Like it, it, it's like a person in Jew face. It's like an actor. It's, I don't know what they've done. It, it really offended me as he comes out with this shotgun. Like it, it is as though these people who've made this movie have not met anyone ever. Except for people who believe exactly what they believe and live in houses exactly like they live in, and maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but I, but I get get the sense that all of the others in this movie are so clearly other. Do you know what I mean? All the quote unquote others are just caricatures. And by the time it got to this jewelry store guy with his shotgun, it it really really bugged me. It's like the only people they've ever met are the people who were raptured, and they're like, "Well, shit, now what? Like, we don't know, we don't <laughs> yeah. know Jewish people. Like, how are we yeah. supposed to? Yeah, yeah. But also." I want to mention, and you sort of alluded to it, it's not the point you were making, but the daughter is the only one who really sees action. She is in the mall and has to dodge a car where the driver was raptured, so she has to dive out of the way of that. At her dad's car, at Cage's car, the biplane crashes into that. Then she finds the guy at the Jewish jewelry store or whatever, and she's got a shotgun pointed in her face. And then at the very end of the movie, she's literally got to dodge out of the way of the wing of the plane that Cage is flying. It's like she is in the wrong place at all the wrong places at all the wrong times. I guess this is, I don't know, like, is that, well, are they saying something about that? I don't yeah, know. It's, absolutely. It's, like, it's crazy. Absolutely. Like, she is a target. She's being targeted by the rapture. That's what's happening to a lot of these people, I feel, is, mm. like, because of her lack of faith, she's the one who berated the lady at the airport in the opening. You know, she stands against the mission statement of the film, you know, right up front. So, like, yeah, like, I noticed every scene that she's in, she's in peril. Like, she's walking under an underpass and some guy comes up and just mugs her <laughs> she's walking along a bridge and a school bus flips over she at one point which was great like she at one point climbs to the top of a bridge to i don't know commit suicide yeah. and that's how she gets cell reception because she's high enough to get like for the satellite <laughs> like that's how i took it like it was just bazonkers but yeah but then as soon as she gets down from that place and she was going to kill herself and she's like looking around and it's like beautifully shot in kind of a weird way. Yeah, yeah. And then she gets a cell reception. And then as soon as she gets down from there, like she just has cell reception for the rest of the movie. Like she just <laughs> needs to go high so that the, tel- the, the tower could be like, oh, there's her phone. Okay, well, now we can track her phone. And you know why that shot looks so pretty when she's up on the thing? is because that's second unit stuff. That's the kind of shots that this director would, would get for other movies. And so he's really good at that. <laughs> like, that's the stuff that's going to work best in this is when there's nobody talking and when you're far away from the thing and you're on the helicopter and you're just driving past this bridge where she's, or flying past this bridge where she's, you know, up on the top. Like, that's the stuff, that's the stuff this guy's going to excel at. And so that's, I think that's why it looks so good. Yeah, we ran into a lot of the same problems with the movie Rage, which was, I believe, directed by a former stunt guy. And, you know, a lot of the drama stuff just wasn't gelling, man. But those action sequences were kick-ass, you know. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. like, it had a lot of the same problems with the strong female characters we've been seeing. And it's tough, too, because when we watched Outcast, like, that brought back hope a little bit. We had, like, this princess in there. Like, she sort of had this Mulan thing going on, you know, with her bravery and everything. And so it's just so so disappointing with this movie how... it just falls back down. Everything's falling down and, again. <laughs> it's all crumbling. And, and I don't dislike this actress. I'd watch her in other things. I'm not. Uh, she's not given great material here, but like she's kind, she's kind of appealing. And but how stupid is this character? Her brother. She was hugging her brother, and then he boom. He was gone, and she's just holding his clothes. And she goes to the hospital to find him, as though he escaped from his clothes in the blink of an eye, naked. 
and went to the hospital? Like, <laughs> I, it, it just, I, I don't know. I do not understand as she's moving through this story why she's doing what she's doing until the very end. It's kind of a shame, I think. Like, why not just go home, right? I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. Well, I'll, no, I'll tell you. I'll, let me Actually, I have my answer in my own notes. I'll tell you why she went to the hospital so that she could walk through the maternity ward. That's the only reason she went to the hospital because they want Which the shot cut. of her walking through. And it is. That's a haunting image, right? Her walking through the room and all no, – there are no babies there and then this mother was is there and she's said she heard the doctors talking and it's happened all over the world and there are no babies. And that's a terrible thing. That is haunting. I, I, I give it that. But like the movie's gone through – you know, it's pretzeled itself to get her to the hospital to have that scene when they could have just cut to that scene. You know what would have been great? Make her a nurse. What does she do in this movie? She's at school. Ah. Why can't she be at medical school? And then it would have been a reason for her to go to the hospital instead of looking for her brother. She's there to help people. And then it's just like chaotic. So she wanders into the nursery ward and, you know, has that moment because they clearly just like, no matter what we do in this movie, we need the scene where all the babies disappeared. And that <laughs> is, you know, maybe that's that that's gonna turn one of those sinners around if they're watching this just like you know we'll hit him with that oh i have no idea i mean that shot is very chilling like you walk around and you're like oh all the babies are gone because of course they're because they're all pure of heart although i think in the bible maybe or maybe just in catholicism i don't know aren't you not supposed to go to heaven until you've been baptized like shouldn't all those babies now be in purgatory so now if you think <laughs> about it isn't it like a really chilling haunting image that they're not only gone but they're not with their moms in heaven they're just wandering around baby purgatory just waiting to like be judged yeah you're thinking catholicism where until you're baptized you're, you still have or you have the original sin of the garden of eden i my understanding is that in this in in a lot of non-denominational and i'm a little bit out of my depth here but my understanding is that you, you're not really truly baptized until you until you're old enough to accept it for yourself and until then or at least when you're when you're an infant or a small child you are innocent you are still innocent and so they would be raptured so those poor babies who know who knows where they wound up <laughs> i see them who knows where any of these people wound up no they're i mean they're in heaven that's where they are they're in heaven definitively in, in heaven or an Alec McBeal, if we're 20 years ago. No, no, I'm a Dancing fans. baby. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Dancing yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so the movie, uh, so the movie's not good, but the movie <laughs> has these moments. And like we talked about when the rapture happens and it's good. And like what's kind of cool is when the rapture happens, like all these, like, I don't know what mall sells balloons like this, but apparently every child in the mall was carrying balloons. <laughs> yeah. And all the balloons start floating up. And the balloons floating up are cool. It would have been really cool if just one balloon floated up. Yeah. But they have like, I don't know, 10 or 12 balloons. Like, too many balloons. And so it's like this great moment to be like, oh, okay, come on. Like, come on, production values. There's the looters, and there's people like fighting with each other, and that's kind of cool and chaotic. And then you walk by, there's a TV, and the news is already on the TV. Yeah. There's no way in the span of five minutes that they would have people <laughs> out in the field producing this. And I fully believe that all these journalists would not go to heaven. They would not get raptured. So they're all still at work. But it's, it, the timeline does not make sense. They're not able to get a crew out to the field and then get a broadcast live on air. There's things that like are cool. And then there's things that you look at and you're just like, wait, like that doesn't make sense. Or that's not like logically consistent. And it's just sort of frustrating. 
especially with how long it takes the people on the plane to figure out what the hell's going on. For the news to yeah. – are already within seconds or minutes at least, like three minutes. It's on TV with the crawl and the explanations and the people – like it does not happen that fast. It just doesn't – you know, it just doesn't happen that fast. Yeah, I'm sort of just trying to watch this like another zombie film at this point pretty much, you know, and like getting sort of vibes like that from it. And there's just no – like communication has to break down before it can sort of build back up in some kind of way. And I just feel like it would all still be down at this point. Like you couldn't really get signals at in or out and stuff. And yeah, you'd still be figuring out like who's around to be in charge. And, you know, in a rapture, like what's going on with the uh, nuclear power plants and things like that? Like is, has the president yeah. been raptured? You know, like there are more important things right now than getting on television and letting people know, like stay in your homes. I think they get the idea. And that had me thinking, is the plane like is that is this the worst place to have this story like would it be better to just be on the ground and with the every time we come back to the plane as we've been saying it it's full of these characters and and it's just not feeling right and then i thought well maybe actually maybe there's a version of this movie that only takes place on the plane and that that could be kind of interesting that, that it could be kind of a you know, a lifeboat kind of uh, yeah. thing, a Hitchcock movie or something like that, where, where we are stuck in this can with these people, unable to communicate with the rest of the world, or it's flight plan, but a rapture. There's a version of this movie, if it's done well, and if the characters are consistent and true and believable and, and human, that could be kind of a fascinating, you know, my, you, if you microcosm the entire world to this plane and then don't let us off it, like that, that could be a way to go with this material. Well, that's what I was going to say, that like the smaller they get, the more interesting it is. Mm-hmm. And I like them trying to figure out like one step at a time. Cage is in the cockpit and like the shit is going wrong. And everybody gets up to the door and they're all just banging on the door. and They all want to get let in. And then he makes an announcement just like, go back to your seats, and he drops all the oxygen masks. It's like him problem-solving like one little step at a time. And that's more interesting. Like the whole bigger picture isn't great. Like when they – I think I, I, we were talking – some another movie that we were talking about, when they, when they get small, it's more interesting. When they try to – like they just don't know how to tell the big picture. It's more interesting. I think that's why The Leftovers is so fascinating because uh-huh. they're not really talking about the event. They're not talking about the event, you know? They're not doing that. They're, they're, they're looking at individual people and they're saying, okay, here is Nora Durst. Her whole family was taken on that day. Here's how she is dealing with it. Here's right. how she's going about her day-to-day life. Here's why she took a job how she did. Here, it's just like, here's the whole world and the whole world's reacting. Like, look at all this crazy stuff. And I'm just like, no, that's too much. Like, it's too big of a, too broad of a stroke. Yeah, you don't get a chance to feel for any of the characters because the, because they have not put the time in to make them real characters, and that's something that that the leftovers. And I'm only I'm I'm almost finished with the first season, so I'm not not fully caught up with where the show is. But thus far, they they care very deeply about these characters, and as you say, are so much more interested in the aftermath, the emotional, the the logistical, the spiritual aftermath of this event happening. And if this movie, you know, cared half as much and invested half as much in its characters as that show does. It would be very different and a much better movie. I too like that moment where he depressurizes the, the the cabin to get everybody to sit back down and put their oxygen masks on. I thought that was a good trick. Like that's another thing to steal from this movie someday. Well, that reminded me of Fight Club when Tyler Durden's like oxygen gets you high. Like that's what like we're they're just sort of messing with you. Like they know that this is not like a panic situation. Just like 
calm you down. Like that, I just I just thought about Fight Club, and I'm going to pull a Mike Manzi here and just say, like, when I watched that scene, I was like, man, I just want to turn this off and watch Fight Club now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just like that's a, a movie on a plane or takes place partially on a plane that I'm more interested in seeing right now. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you guys. Like, smaller would have been better. This on a only on the plane would have been awesome, actually, because that's sort of one of those current trends going around. I remember like when Cloverfield came out, right? It was like, okay, it's a Godzilla film, but he's barely in it because it's from the street level. Little, you know, the kids escaping the city yeah. kind of thing, right? So it's like you take this giant event and you shrink it down to like the smallest possible viewpoint. That would have been great for something like that. I think that would have worked awesomely. You know, it would have given us time to flesh out these characters. We we could have had growth and change. And by the end, the little person would have been, maybe he would have been happy by the end you know what i mean and like alliances could have been forged and broken and you know all kinds of stuff could have happened i think that yeah we stayed on the plane maybe the writers were a little scared they couldn't find enough to do but it's like no man like you gotta that's just like perfect amount of stuff to explore there you know it's like uh, call david gordon green because like we have like a very small (laughs) amount of plot in a small location and we need them to stretch it out to 120 minutes in a, in a good way like I, that's what i'm kind of getting at is like there's definitely enough here or just watch the langoliers i mean the langoliers <laughs> the whole thing is on the plane it's sort of the same thing i mean it's a it's different it's not religious there's so many things that have already been made that you can use as inspiration like i know you want to adapt it from the book and i'm sure the book has all sorts of stuff going on on earth but at the same time like we've talked about pretty much with every adaptation of a book in cage club because none of them, for the most part, with a few exceptions, like Joe and Wild at Heart, have been great, make the thing your own. Like, you can adapt it. Like, it's still based on the book, but just instead of spending so much time on Earth, spend most of the time on the plane and then check back in with the daughter. Because, you know, the daughter's got to be, she's got to do her thing to set up the end of the movie. That's fine. Just don't spend, like, 40 minutes with the daughter and, like, 40 minutes, like, I don't know, pace yourself better, I guess. Mike, you can talk to this probably better than I can, having seen the rest of it. But from what I've seen of the first movie, they've scaled this version down quite a bit. Like, there's a whole thing that gets into, like, the uh, the sinister UN takeover of the world thing. The paranoid, you know, from, from, from the late 90s, you know, uber-conservative paranoia about the black helicopters from the UN flying over Montana farmland and all this all this stuff. That, were, you know, the rise of the militia in, in the West. There's this whole thing about, like, like the UN's going to take over the world and we're going to one currency and everything's mm-hmm. going to be a police state. And if that's true to the books, then the books are as concerned with not just the religious ideology, but with a very conservative political ideology as well, having to do with the, the elites, the quote unquote elites taking over the world and turning us all into like zombie slaves or whatever. At least they have stripped stripped that out for this version of the movie because because that was an even bigger canvas that you know begins in like a like a war zone thing i mean it's a it's a crazy crazy film and so at least they've done that here now you're totally right joey they should have taken it like eight steps farther (laughs) but they've started in the right direction at least yeah yeah to be fair i should say like compared to the first version this is the like cloverfield version of the original where they have scaled it back but yeah there's just room to scale it even further back in i guess more 
sort of talented hands, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, I got to touch on a few things like the original goes through. Like there is definitely that whole they live sort of vibe about like the New World Order taking over. They drop the name the Antichrist, who actually shows up at the end of the movie, who has taken over the UN. And Kirk Cameron has figured it out, but accidentally finds himself as like the media liaison to the Antichrist. Like he accidentally put his cards with the wrong guy and everything. It's crazy. And then there's this whole thing about the Eden formula where they can now grow like, speaking of Montana, I guess they could grow corn and stuff like that in deserts. So the idea was they built, they bought all this land that was useless around the world. And now that the apocalypse happened, they're going to take over and build a new temple in Jerusalem. And the Antichrist is going to take over the world. And it it sounded very Nazi-esque. I even got some sort of the stand vibes from the end of it and all. But uh, just way more of all that and uh, super convoluted and very hard to follow. Just kind of hilarious because it's Kirk Cameron running around the whole time and I'm like, Mike Seaver. I mean, <laughs> grew up watching this guy. just can't take him seriously in it. What's kind of coincidental, and this is sort of a sidetrack, is that this movie, Left Behind, was nominated for three Razzies. It was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, and Worst Actor. However, once again, Cage, in spite of all these Razzie nominations, has never won a Razzie. Thanks this year to Kirk Cameron, who's Saving Christmas, won all three of those awards. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a cool coincidence that Kirk Cameron, the star of the original, the original Nicolas Cage in Left Behind. No, actually, no, he was Buck, oh, right? He was yeah, a Buck journalist. He was a journalist. Yeah. yeah, and it was super yeah. clear that he was a journalist, too, because it starts with him going, like, on TV, I'm reporting live, like, as a journalist. So it's funny that his movie, basically, this thing that he championed, the reboot of that, was bad, but the thing he decided to do was even worse, according to the Razzie. So that's, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Almost as funny as the breakdancing going on in the mall there, because, like, I've actually been witness <laughs> to some pretty spectacular breakdancing as a DJ, and, like, that was just, like, what, what? I don't even know. Oh, no, it's great. I mean, like, part of it they were clapping feels, along. I mean, if part of it feels like it was shot in, like, 1990, and part of it feels like it was shot in, like, 2010. Like, it's just so bizarre, whoever was behind the camera. The breakdancing, I wonder if the breakdancers got raptured. Do we ever know what happened to them? <laughs> no, I didn't see them running around, so... So I think they, they got taken. What about, do we want to just talk about that final landing the plane sequence at no, all? Well, before, before, before we get there, okay. I want to know how the mother, so in first class, there is a mother and a daughter. Oh, and this the daughter, is crazy. And she's married <laughs> to this like spectacular Jets quarterback, which can't be true because the Jets haven't had a good quarterback <laughs> in years. So this is already like a fake fake reality. But anyway, the daughter's talking about how her daddy's hurt because he shoved the dog and the dog bit him and blah, 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 blah. And the little person's like, oh, I got to bet three grand against the Jets and all this different stuff. And then later in the movie, after the daughter is raptured, the mom kind of loses her mind and pulls out a pistol. Yeah. Like, I understand that if you are, you might have connections or whatever, that you might sort of be able to get around some security, possibly, but there's no way you can bring a pistol. Like, where did, like, how did that happen? Okay, so I have two sort of possibilities. One is kind of a joke, but, like, one is that I I think there was an air marshal on the plane that got raptured, and his gun was left behind. And somehow she sort of spied it and grabbed it at some point that we missed. Uh, that's how I think she really got the gun. Otherwise, she's the air marshal. She's lost her mind. And she's turning on everybody. Because like she goes into this whole thing where she's like, we landed and they took my baby. And, like, you know, he knows. I, like, did she steal the kid from the husband?
been like that's the vibe I'm getting is like she kind of kidnapped her daughter, you know, and like flew to London and like thinks that the husband has found her. It's just so many levels of strange. I like your second version better. I think that that's the air, the air marshal. I think that's that's that, that would be fascinating. Have you ever seen that in a film? Like that would be interesting where the air marshal kind of like can't handle the pressure and starts to lose it. And well, I, I, I remember reading an article in in the wake of nine eleven. Uh, the next few years where they were talking about air marshal air marshals how it's like a terrible deadening crazy making job because you just fly all the time and nothing ever happens and yet you have to be ready at any moment for something to happen and like yeah i could see that 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 may be another movie that we should mark down to write because wouldn't cage be great as an air marshal that goes nuts on a plane perfect i would love it i would watch it so one of my other favorite moments is that after (laughs) i can't Mm -hmm. even get to it without laughing while they're figuring it out that it might be the rapture Cage finds out from his mistress, sort of, or almost mistress, that the (laughs) other flight attendant has been raptured. And he's like, go get her stuff. And they're looking through (laughs) her stuff, and they're looking through her day planner, and he finds like she's got like a, like a, a Jesus cross necklace, and he's looking through a day planner and just sees in gigantic words, only thing on that day, like underlined two or three times, Bible study. Like, yeah. oh, I knew it. Like, the religious people, they're gone. Cage, I think, like the daughter, knows that this was probably the rapture, but sort of needs proof. And that's all the proof he needs. That because the one person on the plane, I guess, where she was going to a Bible study that she was this religious person, because she's gone, that's the only explanation it could possibly be. He corroborates it with one other piece of evidence, which is yeah. like the most amazing movie prop I've ever <laughs> seen in my entire life. <laughs> yes. So yes. the co-pilot has been raptured, and he's sort of ruffling through his clothes and pockets and stuff, and he looks at his watch, and like on the face of the watch is printed John 3.16. It's like yes. a Bible verse, like yeah, on, that's that's like that's like the Bible verse. It's like on the watch. What the hell? Like I'm serious. Like that just seemed like for the movie. Like that did not seem like you could buy a watch that has <laughs> no. I I like would that believe that you it. could probably buy that watch because that is like the Bible verse. That's like the for God so loved the world he gave his one and only son. Like that is you know in the in the 70s there, there was that guy in every baseball stadium who was holding up the John three sixteen sign. Like that is the one. Like that's sort of the verse. But like, like that's on like, a watch, like where you know why not? Like, it's, a watch it's, it's actually three sixteen twice on a watch. Like it has to be, you know, because it's a watch. So like it's gonna be that time of day. I don't know. It just seemed very far fetched. Like I would have bought it more if he looked through his day planner and they found more other types of evidence on the girl. I don't know. I just thought that was just yeah. like, unbelievable. What's the difference here? I feel like it's not so crazy. I think that the, that it's that the watch says John 13, uh, John three sixteen. that I think the cra- the even crazier thing is that he picks up like that. The, the music swells when he sees that, you know, it's like the first piece of evidence that he finds that's the rapture. And it's like, da, 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 you know, and like the movie is just underlining these things, just like the Bible study in the, in the, in the day planner is underlining these things six or seven times just to make sure you don't miss it. And I laughed when the, I laughed when like, how little does he know this co-pilot? You know, I, it's just, <laughs> it, it's, it seems like a, like a, like a crazy minutia thing for him to like, then jump to that conclusion from. Now I realize I say that after having been the one that said earlier, like, had these people never heard of the rapture before? Like, would you go there pretty early? But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I got a chuckle out of that prop too, for sure. And guys, it's his birthday. Can I just yes. remind us? Like they have not even like, <laughs> 
brought that up again whatsoever. They don't even sing happy birthday to the captain. Like, what a great moment that could have been. Like, that's how I, you know, let's get the entire, everyone sing happy birthday to the captain. Yay. And like, nope, never coming back up. He doesn't even have a line where he's like, shittiest birthday ever or nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. What I think of this movie, the movie sort of takes like a right turn kind of, that I feel like instead of the message being go to church, follow God, read the Bible, etc., it almost feels like the third act is just spend time with your family. Because we hear the Texan, which is a guy, Gary Grubbs, who also happened to be the chief of police and bad lieutenant, and he's talking to, I believe, the junkie, and he's talking about how he's always busy, he was always going on business trips, he never saw his daughter grow up, And I feel like that's why he wasn't raptured, because he was a bad family man. And then it seems like Cage, at the same time, his only motivation, his only driving force to land the plane is not to save the people, but just to go find his family, or at least find his daughter or see who's left or whatever. It's almost like the movie doesn't care necessarily about religion anymore, which is sort of weird, or it does, but more so than religion, it cares more about family, which I guess is similar but it's sort of like I think a weird kind of tonal shift a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't think the film knows. You know, like that's what it comes down to yeah. for me is it's just like we're gearing up for the third act and it's just going to kind of just turn into an action sequence at this point really. And yeah, they kind of run dry. Like they've loaded this so much with like message that they've sort of forgot to develop the story kind of or like a plot and everything. And so here they're just shoehorning in like their final message, I guess, which is family, you know, and it doesn't work nearly as well as it does in Fast and Furious. I'll tell you that much. I <laughs> No, I want to go yes. have a barbecue after this movie. They try to to hit the faith thing a little bit at the end as he's as as he's working to land the plane and like they lose the lights. They they're losing. They don't know. They don't know how much fuel they have. They don't know if they have enough to make it. They, like his instruments aren't working. There. So he's gonna. I wrote a note. So he has to land the plane on faith. Like that's that's where we're getting at the end of the movie. And then of course no, because his you know his daughter sends blows up these explosives and stuff to let him know where to where he's supposed to land and stuff. You're. I think you're totally right, Mike. That it's the movie's confused at this point about what it's doing. Or as we've said earlier, it's it's not interested in in the story it's interested just in the sort of you know the ideological aspect but now i think is the time to talk about the big heroic plane landing at the end that earlier in the movie this is sort of like i guess okay foreshadowing but it's so obvious in the beginning of the movie that when the daughter and the son are driving to the mall they pass a sign that says road closed and it'll be like, oh, okay, like that's going to mean something. But then they like hover on that sign for like a while. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like remember this. Like this is going to come back later. Toward the end of the movie, Cage finally gets a hold of ground control, right? And they're like, we got birds all over the runways. Like there's no runways free. Like there's the one, the <laughs> one guy who wasn't raptured at air traffic control. Cage's like, I don't know where to land. He gets in touch with his daughter, and his daughter's like, I've got a place. And she goes to that road and just starts clearing things away. And it's like, oh, like, okay. Like, the movie was kind of smart in terms of setting it up to pay it off later, but it was so obvious about doing it that it was just like, are people going to feel proud that they're like, oh, I remember that from earlier in the movie? 
I was so confused, to be honest with you. Like, I knew she went down the same road, but where she ended up kind of baffled me because I think she said she's at the mall that's under construction. This is a different mall than the one she was at earlier in the movie where her brother got raptured. There's two malls in New York City that close to, or in New York, that close to each other. One's like an old mall, like the, or one, and one's a new one being built, and she's going to have the plane land not in like the parking lot but like on a road next to the mall i'm so confused the thing that i like most about that first shot of the of the that lingered on the road closed sign is that it says road closed and it gives the, the i forget the name of which road and new york city this way whatever and then if you look up on the interstate above there there's a sign that clearly says i-75 and by this point i wanted to know where they shot this movie and so i looked up where where i-75 is and it goes from florida all the way up to michigan so i think they shot this movie in florida that, that's the thing that stuck out to me no, most. they they shot this movie Believe it or not, they shot this movie in New Orleans. Where the last like ten Cage movies were all shot in New Orleans. This one, oh another God. one, shot in New Orleans. I wonder if that's the abandoned mall from Seeking Justice. It very well may be. Jeez, <laughs> oh, Louise. Wow. Well, it, cer- it certainly wasn't shot in New York. No. <laughs> and then she like really snaps out of it because she knows her dad's alive and becomes you know a heroine at this point, right? Like she is in the car like running down all the construction signs and things like that clearing the runway right that's her job here she's clearing the runway yeah because he means a mile because normally i guess they need a half mile but because something on the plane is broken or because the plane's on fire or the landing gear is damaged he needs a full mile this is another movie where women not great like there's the daughter who's i mean aside from the fact that the women who are left are all heathens that are should not be loved anyway because they're all sinners in some way or another the daughter's all right. The daughter's not terrible. The stewardess, the flight attendant, is not great. But then as the daughter is basically doing everything in her power to save the day, she knows the road to go to to save Cage. She knows how to get there. Like, she gets there. She starts clearing the road. She's moving, like, things out of the way. He gets off the phone with her after she's like, I only got nine-tenths of a mile. And he's like, that'll do. And then he hangs up. He basically says, stupid girl, I need a full mile. I just didn't want to blame her. She did (laughs) so much and he just immediately discredits her. It's amazing how quickly he turns to not necessarily belittle her, but that's kind of the vibe that it gives off. Yeah. And this is another point at which it becomes more about ideology than, than anything else. Because again, this is, he has to land this plane on faith. He doesn't know if he has enough fuel. He doesn't believe he has enough runway. It's not that he's irredeemable, but he's certainly not, you're not behind him at this moment, right? Like she's doing the best she can and i I don't know i don't know because the film makes choices because of ideology instead of because of character it ends up screwing up the characters yeah i think what it's unintentionally say like i don't even think the movie realized what it did in that moment but what i got from it was like oh like this is why he's not raptured he's a terrible person you know like he's just gonna sort of say something like after she does like all this and then he'll just say something like that you know like that's just part of his nature as a character as a person and maybe that's just something cage brought or maybe it's just an accident something that i that we're seeing something something along those lines well i don't think it's necessarily an accident because the same thing like buck says the same thing or basically where he's like open up the compass app on your on your phone she's like got it he's like 
see the bottom, see those little numbers, read them to me. It's like, yeah, like, you don't have to say, like, those little numbers. Like, sh- like she's a smart person. Like, just say, like, read me the numbers. Like, read me the coordinates. Like, she, he, he's basically speaking to her, like, gee golly, like, I don't know what GPS is. Like, I don't know what these numbers are. Like, can you, re- can you help me read this phone? Yeah, and if you go earlier in the movie, like, v- very, very beginning, not very beginning, the, after the rapture, early on, where the stewardess, the flight, sorry, the, <laughs> here I go, because it's because of the movie that I, that I we are, are start, oh, starting yeah, to say I, stewardess. Oh, yeah, I feel like it's like, a, it's allowed you're allowed to be okay like politically incorrect or a little bit racist because the movie is because the movie is okay right right exactly you don't want to say midget but like the movie's like hey look at hey look at the midget over there or like hey look at the big black guy or like hey look at the muslim like that's all that's all the movie's doing so the flight attendant says to cage she says i'm so scared aren't you scared and he says something like she's just terrified right she's freaking out and he like he says no but i will be when I get when I, when I have time, right? It's this whole idea of like the men are in charge. The men, except for the daughter, who up until the end has has although she's been dumb, right? She's gone to the, the hospital. I guess I've already said that. The men in this movie are going to be calm and cl- cool and collected, and they're going to hold it together, and then they're going to save the world. And that the women have to be sort of nudged toward it, right? Or as you say, led toward it by their nose. You know, the movie has such a dim view of hum- humanity, and as you say, you know, women at two from from the very beginning with the flight attendant and her sort of vixen lipstick and all that bullshit to the end with the daughter and not being able to ha- know how to use a compass app that she has on her phone. You know, I, I just, ah, uh, it's bugging me. Well, <laughs> it's need, really need we for- I don't want to forget that when he's like, honey, I need something bright so I can see it. She's like, I'm flashing my high beams. Like, is this bright enough for you? And it's like, like how? Like, no, like what? <laughs> it's insane, especially since like she was about to commit suicide about an hour ago. Thanks a lot, movie. Like you were just bouncing this poor girl all over the map. Yeah, and one thing is clear, like, none of these people, like, maybe the daughter, but no one else is really going to get raptured after this if there's a second one. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you can sort of do the thing where, like, after the first people have left, like, you realize what's gone on and you really change your ways and you try and be a better person, then you could, you too, it's not too late. Like, he'll come down for you. I don't think these guys realize that. (laughs) They're just going to continue being the terrible people that they are. Well, actually, Tobin, that's a question. Like, is there a second rapture? My understanding is that there, there are other chances, and you're not. If you're not raptured, you're you're left to endure the what is it, seven years or how, whatever the timeline is of the, the the devil's reign on earth and famine and flood and all that terrible stuff. You still have the chance in that time period to find your way to heaven, but you that you're going to have to sort of live through that. I'm not sure if there are other raptures or if you just quite literally have to somehow be saved before you die in that time frame. One Thank thing you. that would be great for a sequel would be you know Cage fighting demons taking over the earth getting his daughter to safety like that kind of direction i wouldn't mind coming back for some of that i don't think cage is going to come back for that but mm. I, I mean if he comes back we'll be back so it, um, it, would that be like independence day is that like <laughs> what, where does it, you know or you know what it is it turns, it's knowing it is knowing. Yeah, well, actually it, spe- speaking of independence day he's got his Bill Pullman as president from Independence Day speech, he gets on the the overhead speaker in the plane. He has this speech like early in the movie. This is what we're doing. This is what's happening. I can't get in touch. We're going back. Like he's sort of got like this rallying cry in Independence Day. Like it's this like triumphant moment that even though that movie, like you could point out lots of things that the movie's not great or whatever, it's fun. And like that's a great moment. Like here, just nobody reacts. And I feel like he's got all these moments where he's like the leader of these people and they do nothing. Like, as he's about to land the plane, he says, and I quote, 
if you believe in prayer, now would be the time. And then nobody does anything, because all the Christians <laughs> have been raptured. He's got these things like, all right, like right, we're going to get together, we're going to get through this together, and then just nobody responds. I watched his interview on the on the disc. I'm not sure if either of you guys did. Where he, and he talks about that the prayer code that moment at the end where he where he says if you you know if you pray now's the time and talking about that being a real thing that he sort of discovered in his research that pilots will do at the end when when it when they don't think that they're going to make it and that they will go on the air and say look this is <laughs> as a sort of way of saying like if this is your this is your chance right that's a detail that he picked out and wanted to put in the in the movie you can see that the movie's not. Picked Picking up on that at all like it's <laughs> the movie's not just interested in sort of using that in any kind of interesting or intelligent or provoking way it's just sort of dropped in there right so mike back to what you were saying about if my wife is leaving somebody at least it's for jesus the chances are the best part the best parts of him in this movie are because of him and that the movie's not smart enough to sort of see it through and and play it out in the rest of the the rest of the story yeah, because I almost get a sense that Cage, the actor, might have mapped out an arc for this character, even if it's not used in the film. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like him as an actor knows who he's playing. To include this moment, maybe he felt that they were going to work an arc into him where he did become more religious and, you know, maybe he could be redeemed somewhere along the way. You know, the fact that it just falls flat just speaks to the point that the filmmakers don't want that for his character. Like, it's just like, okay, like, let's just please mr cage because we want him in our film you know and like you know it's a real thing so like let's put it in the movie as well but like none of these people are gonna yeah i think maybe one or two of them does like the heroin addict and the super old lady but it's just like no it would just be like what can you do it just be like hold on you know like tuck your head between your knees and just like just hold on like we'll we'll be on the ground soon or we'll be dead on that note why did that poor old woman not get raptured and her husband did like what 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 is her sin you know well, yeah. I feel like I feel like she she well, kind oh, of has Alzheimer's, dementia. maybe. Yeah. Like she, yeah, she's got so clearly oh. like good Christian women do not get dementia. They're both crazy because he's like, "Honey, we're home." Like their whole uh, and you know, oh, never mind. There's, I'm not even gonna get into the it. There's a thing about like the people on the plane, right? The people who were left behind, the old lady, you know, the the crazy mother and stuff. Like it just feels like the people with sort of afflictions or physical diversities and people that just don't fit in, right? Like to our way of life, like they'll be left behind too. Just like, you know, we're close-minded. Like, it's not a movie about embracing your fellow man, necessarily. It's just more about, like, there's this secret club, you know, yes, we're lucky yes. we're in it. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. That's it. And that gets back to the ideology. You're totally right. Like, we shouldn't be looking this deep into this. This is like, no, you want to be one of the people who doesn't have to endure this. And I'm like, yeah, the movie. <laughs> You're right. I don't want to be one who has to endure this. But luckily for everyone involved, Cage's daughter does enough in the film to clear enough runway and even though she can't get out of the way and she needs him to like pivot the wing so that it doesn't hit her in the car the plane basically lands without incident doesn't really crash into anything and everyone is saved and it's sort of like a happy ending until they look up at the burning city in front of them and they say it looks like the end of the world and then somebody else says no, it's just the beginning. And then it's like, oh, another 15 movies, all the left behind books, let's get going. <laughs> Looks like the end of the world. No, not yet. I'm afraid this is just the beginning. 
And you know the the actual the actual landing of the plane as she's doing the the last she runs a lot at the end. I sort of got confused a little bit. There is an energy to the very last moments in the movie that I think again points to like the very basics of cinema, like cross cutting when you cut between two things that are happening simultaneously, and especially when they're on some kind of a collision course. It's going to get your blood pumping a little bit. <laughs> this movie, if nothing else, that is such a low bar to hit. There are moments in that in that last sort of climactic scene that you do sort of you know as it cuts back and forth. It's just the basic power of, of cinema at work. It's not at all the, a, a craftsman the, from the craftsmanship of, of the making of the film. It's just very 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 basic. Yeah, and I also feel like it works because most of this movie is just you know like a cockpit shot or a centrifuge shot or you know stuff like that. So aside from the running around on the ground here and there, although she is in the shit a lot, like. It's really not as much as we're really saying. Like, there are moments where she's just sort of sitting in the church or sitting in the house and just sort of sitting and walking around and not much is very happening. There's just so much static camera, like, on the plane and stuff that in the Mm -hmm. end here, like, combined with the cross-cutting, like, it feels like there's action on the plane, too. So, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, just because of the mechanics of filmmaking, like, it's paying off. I don't know if it's paying off enough for, like a sequel no. or anything no. like that you no. know where can they actually go with this you know like I don't see Left Behind too divergent or anything like well, where do you go I mean there are the 15 books like I don't know what's in those books but I'm guessing this is sort of the first one and I mean to compare it again we really shouldn't to The Leftovers The Leftovers season one is based on the book like the way that the book ends is the way the first season ends And so you have this world where an event has happened, and you could really go anywhere with it. There are so many different places you could go. Not that necessarily these authors or this filmmaker can do it in an interesting way, like, you know, Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada can do with season two of The Leftovers, but there are stories to tell if they want to be told. That's when you get into the Antichrist, right? I suppose like that's sure. what the rest of those books are about. Like those <laughs> yeah, seven years, yeah. like actual hell on yes. earth, you know, right. the dead rising from the grave, maybe? I don't know. Maybe in this that is seven a, This is actual apocalypse. That's what this is. This is meant to be the beginning of where this comes from. This is the four horsemen, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The, the, all this stuff, the book of oh. Revelation happens in the next however many uh, movies that this would turn out to be. You know, there's a lot of, I don't want to say that there's a lot of story there necessarily, but there's a lot of material there that, that you yeah. could draw from. Yeah. There's mythology. I mean, it's all the, it's all drawn <laughs> right. from like the Bible, though. So they've co-opted like what they like, I suppose, and they're just like twisting it. But right. how great would it have been if they saw one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse from the plane? Holy shit, that would have been awesome! Like, what's that on the wing? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like it's like a horse and it's on fire and shit. And you're like, oh my god, it's gone! It's <laughs> Ghost Rider on a horse. Oh no, no way! That's there right. you go. Yeah. How much do you think oh. this movie cost to make? Thirty. That's a good guess. I'm still going to go a little... I'm going to say 18. 16. Mm. It was very, really (laughs) relatively inexpensive. And I think, as you can tell from when the plane lands... I apologize to the to, to, for mocking the CGI and knowing because this is atrocious CGI. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's that, and this is also you know five years later. So there's really no excuse. It made 14 million domestically, wow. another 5.6 overseas. Wow. So if there were no if there was no promotion for this movie, and I don't right. remember any, but I'm sure there was, it maybe made some money. Who knows? The one other quote that I pulled from a reviewer a review in Christianity Today, which is a magazine, this movie seems like, the subject matter seems like, the books seem like, 
this is the kind of thing that a minister can be like, all right, our whole church, like instead of going to church, or like right after church, we're going to go to the movie theater, we got a screen rented out, we're going to watch it all together. The, the magazine review says that it's not a Christian movie, whatever quote-unquote Christian movie could even possibly mean. In fact, most Christians within the world of the movie are portrayed as insistent, crazy, delusional, or at the very least, just really uh-huh. annoying. Yeah. They want churches to book whole theaters and take their congregations, want it to be a youth group event, want magazines like ours to publish discussion questions at the end of the reviews, want the system to churn away, all the while netting them cash without ever having to have cared a shred about actual Christian belief. They want to trick you into caring about this movie. Don't. And then they said that they tried to give the film zero stars, but their tech system would not allow a zero star review. So I love that the publications, that in theory, this movie, this should be their bread and butter. Like, this should be, if you tell it in a way that fits the Christian ideology, if it's Christian beliefs, that if it's all in that, these are the reviews, the one I just read, the one I read read at the top, should be the ones that are like, yes, this is the movie, like, it's kind of scary, it's kind of intense, but like, this is what we're talking about. But instead, these reviews are just like, no, do not steer clear, do not go see this. Like, it is awful, and I just think that's so funny. One thing that's kind of strange about that is that like, this was sort of sanctioned by the guys who created the books, right? So on one level, if you don't like the movie, why do you like the book? Like, what is it about the book? Is it, you know, where are the, uh, is it the uh, ideas in there that are missing from the film? Or is it, have you just realized watching it on the big screen instead of reading it in private that like, oh, this is all very silly. Like, it does not shine a nice light on what I believe in. And maybe I need to take a better look at myself, perhaps. I don't I don't know necessarily. I mean, like, I happen to agree with the reviewer because everybody just seems sort of like a mockery of themselves, right? Like, they didn't get anybody right. Like, if this is made by people with faith and religion, like, it just doesn't feel like it. It feels like a mockery in a way. Yeah, nobody comes off well in this movie. You know, like, uh, I don't care what your what their persuasion is, what their height is, what their ancestry is. No, nobody comes off. Everybody, as you say, comes off as a caricature in this movie. And it's, so, yeah, again, I'm not surprised, but I'm sort of gratified that the wool wasn't pulled over people's eyes uh, necessarily. Uh, and people didn't flock to see this movie for, for the right or the wrong reasons, you know? The only other thing that I wanted to point out was that a lot of the... Not necessarily, I mean, some were extras, but a lot of the background characters in this movie have popped up in other Cage movies from New Orleans. So I guess it's just like a stable of actors who maybe have seen Cage around (laughs) on several sets. People who were in Bad Lieutenant and Stolen and Seeking Justice and Mm -hmm. Rage. That there are all these movies that I think at least most of those were shot in New Orleans. So it's kind of cool that, you know, some of these people have four acting credits or four film credits with Cage. You know, because they're just in the New Orleans scene and he seems to be filming all of his movies down there now. There's great great tax in- incentives right now in, yep. in Louisiana and New Orleans, so it's not surprising that way. But that, that's kind of neat. These people have, like, that we have some a lot of multiple cage connections here. That's that's cool. Or, sorry, cage connections. Rem- cage connections. You would remember them as such memorable characters as Kimmy, Checkout Lady, Jim, Young Mother, and Airplane Passenger. They've all been in other cage movies before. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's kind of cool because, you know, like most of this takes place on a plane, which was filmed in a set. So it's like we just need a, a soundstage. Like, why not film it in New Orleans? You know, like, it's great. It's pretty cool. I like I like hearing about that. So that's all my notes. Uh, Tobin, anything that we didn't talk about that you uh, you wanted to cover? Yes, I've got three three last things. 
the first is there's a moment when the daughter is going uh, walking home and she's finally in their neighborhood closing into her house and you hear a dog barking in the distance which tells me that all dogs do not go to heaven that's <gasps> Yep, yep, it's true. Turns out, turns out we were lied to as children. And then the second thing is that the old man is raptured from the plane. He, all his clothes are left. What I'm wondering is, presumably, a man of that age would might possibly have some, like an artificial hip or something, you know, like mm. some stents in his heart. Do those things get left too? Yeah, Because that could dentures. have been kind of pretty cool. His dentures, yes. That his dentures and his pacemaker and his artificial hip were left in the chair with his clothes. I think that that could have been pretty cool. And the last thing was the last note. My last note on this movie, which occurred, you know, as the as the plane is is crashing or landing, crash landing at the end, is man, this makes me want to watch Con Air again. <laughs> I faced the thing to Mike because Mike made the same point. He's like, you know, two different plane movies, and again, there's also a plane crash in Knowing too. So I mean, not that Cage yeah. was on the plane in that, but there's a plane crash there. And on IMDb, where I get a lot of the trivia from, there's like a spoilers section. And in the spoilers section, there's a, <laughs> there's a note that says, the second movie in which Nicolas Cage saves a plane, the first being Con Air. And only seven of 17 people found that fact interesting. So I feel like, <laughs> I feel like those 10 people who said no are horribly mistaken. <laughs> yes. That's true. I would, I would rather see Knowing again as well, by a mile, right? Like a, another like, pre-apocalyptic film. Right, but also consider how they tried to handle their religious themes in that film, right? Like, they were there, right? They didn't, you know, well, there were a lot of things going. It was a little overstuffed, yeah. but, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the way in which they presented religion in that film was sort of more tactful than they did in this film, totally. which is kind of interesting. And, and it wasn't de- very tactful in that film, but it was more tactful than this one, for sure. I definitely thought about pets. Like, what happens to the pets? There's this one heartbreaking shot of a dog sitting on a corner next to his owner's clothes, <laughs> just sort of yes. looking around in confusion. I was like, oh my god. And the only <laughs> other note I really had was, I think this is the first movie where it was a book that was made into a film that was then remade. We've had other remake reboots, right? Yeah, we've had some other remakes and stuff like that, you know, like Bangkok Dangerous and Kiss of Death, you know, things like that. But I think this is the first thing that was like a a book and then a movie and then like a remake. I don't know if that's significant. I'm just stretching for anything. One other thing I wanted to point out that I thought that Tobin, it sounded like when your first point was going to be about this, but then it turned out to be about the dog. When she goes home, the phone rings, and she gets so scared by the phone. Do you remember the scene yes, where she's yes. like walking around her house, and then the phone rings, and she jumps? Like, as long as she's just, like, startled. Like, she jumps. And I was just like, why are you so... I don't... It's not like everything's gone. Like, just like your mom's gone. Like, you know, like, I don't... It's just weird. Yeah, it is weird. And she's... <laughs> you can't take anything that she does very seriously because she is portrayed as so dim. Without them really knowing that they're doing that. I feel bad for that actress. So this actress is apparently from Big Love and Switched at Birth. Like, she's been on, like, 20 episodes of each. Apparently was originally cast Ashley Tisdale, who I think I'm not really too familiar with, but I know she's sort of, like, a more well-established actress, and then she had to back out for one reason or another, and they found this girl to replace her. Tia Mowry? You know, like, Tia and Tamara? Like, she was originally cast in some part... There haven't been a lot of movies lately. Like, there's a lot of trivia about this movie. Like, I feel like people are interested in the backstory of this movie for probably many different reasons. <laughs> yeah, and Jordan Sparks, there's a, a American Idol winner on this plane. And also Lolo Jones, the Olympian, the who's sort of almost less known for being an Olympian, like a medal-winning athlete, 
than for being like this very famous virgin who's like very Christian and outspoken about her beliefs. And I believe she's maybe the ticket taker at the airport. So like, there's like all these. I guess I, I feel oh. like there's oh. all these people, like all these celebrities or pseudo celebrities who are outspoken about the religion. They're like, "Hey, can I be a part of that?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." Like, you don't even have to speak a line. Like, you can just like take a ticket and like let people on the plane. Like, there you go. Oh. Except she got lines. Like, how many times are you at the airport and they're boarding and you're the last one on and you're a famous journalist and the ticket taker <laughs> comes over and says, sir, for the third time, we've been waiting for you. The, the plane is now boarding. I mean, that was that was just bizarre. Yeah, I, bizarre. It, stood out, it stood out to the degree where it's like, that's probably somebody. I also thought it was really funny how we see the guy walking around like he's, we talked about earlier that he's being flocked to by all these people. He starts up a conversation with Cage's daughter and then of course he just happens to be on the plane that Cage is flying. And then also when he gets on the plane, he's just able to walk into the cockpit and give him the U2 tickets. <laughs> like, yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah. Like, I, I know that when you, t- when you fly, the door is open. And I guess in theory, you could go in there, especially as a celebrity. Oh, he's, Buck, he's Buck Williams. He's, he's Buck, Buck Williams. Williams. Buck to his friends. Cam- I think that's Cameron, right. but Buck to his friends. She's like, right, I'm Chloe right. to my friends. Grown. But, like, I guess, like, in theory, you could <laughs> go in there. But it's like there's nobody at the door. And he just walks in, and it's just like, here you go, here's your U2 tickets, and then just goes and sits down. Like, it's, it's so weird. Yeah, you and I would not get away with that. Well, who knows? Probably, Duck, probably ducking, not. Ducking into the cockpit? Oh, hey, hey, guys, here you go. Oh, tickets for you. I mean, it's just crazy. It's a make-believe world. This is a diorama. This movie is a diorama of the world that these people's ideology believes exists. And that's maybe the most troubling thing. I feel like in this world, the 9-11 just never happened. Or maybe yeah, it did. People can just like walk on board with planes, you know, show up at the airport and just buy a ticket to go anywhere they want. Like at that moment, it's just like, okay, yeah, no security checks, just a laissez-faire attitude again. Mike, anything else that you want to cover? No, I don't think I have, I don't think I have anything left in my notes. So what a ride. What a ride. This is a longer podcast than we've done lately, but I felt I, like I knew that this was going to be a long one because this movie is just crazy, and there's just yeah. so much to talk about. I don't know why you necessarily picked this one, even though I read your, your verbatim why you wanted <laughs> yeah. to sign up for this. I still don't know that I'll ever understand your actual motivations for it, but we were thrilled to have you on board. I was happy to be here, as always. Whether the movies are good or bad, I, I, as I say, I love talking to you guys about this stuff. You are a true co-pilot, and we're just glad that you oh. did not get back. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, no, no, there's no chance of that, man. No chance of that. So for all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Mm